This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You may remember a few years back hearing about this amazing scandal from the financial sector, not the one here in the U.S., but the one involving key global benchmarks, something that could affect trillions of dollars of loans. And for some, many places around the globe, it was known as the LIBOR scandal, which stands for London Interbank Offered Rate. It sets the interest rates on home and auto loans for millions of people, as well as college loans and much more. Uh, As one professor said, this scandal dwarfed any financial scams in the history of the markets. The Wall Street Journal's David Enrich takes a look back at how this all came to pass in his new book, The Spider Network, the wild story of a math genius, a gang of backstabbing bankers, and one of the greatest scams in financial history. And David joins us right now. David, phenomenal title. I mean, that, that covers about everything there. Yeah, it's a mouthful, huh? It is. I like those sometimes, though. It, it draws people in. Uh, thanks for giving us some time today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this book actually started uh, with a series of articles that you did for the Wall Street Journal several years ago. Yeah, that's right. So the uh, the mastermind of this LIBOR scandal is a guy named Tom Hayes, who is a mildly autistic mathematician who is a star trader at some of the world's biggest banks. And he was accused at the end of 2012 of being kind of the central figure in the scandal by both uh, American prosecutors and British prosecutors. And right around that time, I started to get to know Tom Hayes really well personally. And uh, I first interviewed him for a seri- for an article that I was doing in the Wall Street Journal. And then over the ensuing months and years, uh, developed a much I and mean, I spent an enormous amount of time. Uh, talking on the phone with him, uh, having coffee with him, drinking beers with him. I uh, got to know him really well, his wife really well, and his, the rest of his family as well. And that gave me this really interesting glimpse into the world in which Hayes was operating. In. And uh, did, was it surprising to you that, I mean, you had such the, this, this free access to the guy that was basically starting this whole, this whole scandal out? Well, that's what I thought at first. I mean, it was I was really stunned by kind of the serendipity of the thing. This this all got started because I had been, you know, Hayes emerged. He was the central person that had been accused by prosecutors, and I wanted yeah. not a whole lot was known about him. And so I started talking to some of his friends and former business school classmates, and one of them turned out to be pretty helpful and offered to pass on my phone number to him, with the caveat that obviously, you know, this guy has been. He's facing criminal charges. The last thing he's going to do is call a reporter to talk to him. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, I was sitting at home. I, I was in the London Bureau of the Journal at the time, and I was sitting at home one evening, and my iPhone buzzed with a text message, and it was from a number I didn't recognize. And it said, this goes much, much higher than me. Not even the Justice Department knows the full story. I'm willing to talk to you, but I need to make sure I can trust you. And it, it was Tom Hayes. And wow. he... He offered to meet me the following morning uh, at a really busy train station in London outside of Burger King, and so he'd be wearing a brown leather jacket. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of thinking to myself that I'm stumbling into, like, uh, all the president's men or something. <laughs> I um, was just going to say Watergate all over again. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I'm, like, thinking I'm Bob Woodward here. And uh, it actually, he ended up canceling the meeting the next morning because his wife had somehow seen his text messages to me and right, right. thought, 
his wife was a lawyer and thought this is a really bad idea. But yeah, I mean, I was the most fascinating thing to me is that I had thought about this at the outset as I cannot believe this criminal mastermind is naive enough to be talking to me. It turned out, I think, part of the reason he was so eager to talk to me is because the story was a lot more complicated than I had originally thought. And it wasn't nearly as clear cut and black and white as prosecutors and regulators were portraying it, which was that, you know, this was the bad apple or the evil mastermind or evil genius who had, you know, orchestrated the scheme to rip off all these innocent people. It was much more uh, a story about a financial system run amok and uh, how the overall banking system kind of encouraged more or less this type of behavior, not just from Hayes, but from a really wide range of people, including a lot of his superiors who ended up not suffering particularly severe consequences from that. Well, and I want to get into that because that brings up a bigger issue. But as you said, where where we're talking about the LIBOR, I mean, there were so many banks that kind of relied on this to to you know to be able to figure out what the patterns were going yeah. to be on loans and stuff. And, and it's unique in that one piece is so reliant on so many other uh, other banks around uh, around Europe, around the world. Yeah, that's right. I mean, LIBOR, just for a, a quick primer on that to people who focused on this a few years ago and then probably forgot about it, which I think was probably the vast majority of the human population. Yeah. Uh, and it's the London interbank offered rate, as you said. Every day around lunchtime in London, uh, some of the world's biggest banks, including a bunch of American ones, estimate how much it would cost them, theoretically, to borrow money from another bank. They then take that number, they zip it over in an email to the British Bankers Association, which is basically a lobbying group in London. The BBA tosses out the high and low estimates and then averages the rest, and presto, that's LIBOR. And LIBOR is often described as the world's most important number because, as you mentioned, it is the basis for interest rates on huge quantities of debt all over the world. So a lot of variable rate mortgages, auto loans, credit cards, student loans, things like that. But the bigger, bigger issue is that when companies borrow money, the interest rate they pay is often based on LIBOR. When, if uh, towns or cities or pension funds or university endowments look to protect themselves against swings and things like interest rates, they're often using instruments that are tied to LIBOR. And so if LIBOR is getting skewed by banks, it has the potential to ripple through the financial system in a way that almost no other type of manipulation has that has and, the power to and, do. And so Tom Hayes, with his mathematical background, uh, fits into this into this puzzle in what manner? Because I, I mean, to have that, he was able to. I guess he was able to gauge the what these markets were going to yeah. do and what the impact was going to be, so that potentially the banks could profit. Well, yeah, and he was really work building on the the important work done by some of his predecessors because starting about 20 years ago when LIBOR became increasingly prevalent in the financial system, a lot of traders at banks realized, and and these are guys who, by the way, are transacting in huge volumes of derivatives that are based on LIBOR. So they stand to gain or lose a lot of money based on very small movements in LIBOR up or down on a daily basis. And these guys realized that LIBOR, no one's paying any attention to how LIBOR is set. No one's supervising the process. And so they can place a phone call or send an email to the relatively low-ranking person uh, elsewhere in their bank or in another bank and say, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you today move LIBOR up by you know, a few fractions of or a few hundredths of a percentage point? And generally the answer is yes. And Hayes's genius realization of this was that he could take things a step further. So instead of just kind of quietly pestering people 
elsewhere in his bank, he started going, not only, he did go to people at his own banks, but he also went to people at other banks, so yeah. his competitors. He used brokers to reach out to even more people. And so he basically took what it was longstanding industry practice to a new, higher, more ambitious, more creative level. And he, he in some ways, he just pushed the envelope a little bit further and a little more aggressively than anyone else had before him. And that is, you know, that's in keeping with the industry's or the financial industry's longtime mantra, which is basically the way you make money as a trader is you look to identify uh, inefficiencies in the market, weaknesses, loopholes, uh, things like that, and then you find ways to exploit those loopholes and those weaknesses and those inefficiencies. And that can be in the form of having better information than your competitors. It can be in the form of having worse or dumber clients than your competitors, right. faster trading systems, better technology, or the ability to kind of subtly nudge something that you're trading on. And that, that's what Hayes did with great uh, pleasure and great, and great applause from his superiors. But, but he did. it seems like with the fact that you had such access to him that at some point – he he had hesitation and, and he understood yep. the what was going on and really the impact of, of what it was having around the world. I'm not sure he ever realized what the impact it was having. Okay. He did at times though have real um, qualms about some of what he was doing, and, and he knew. And this is something he told me over and over again as I was first getting to know him that he did not think that most of what he was doing was wrong, but that because he saw everyone else doing it, it was so embedded in the industry's DNA. But he did acknowledge that there were a number of times where they pushed the envelope especially far, where he was really, he felt like he was colluding with his competitors. He felt like right. he was doing something that was really just false and misleading. And, he, you know, he took solace in the fact that his bosses knew about and generally approved of what he was doing. But as most of us learn from a very early age, just because everyone is doing something bad doesn't mean it's okay for you to do something <laughs> bad yourself. And that's a message that was really lost on an entire generation of people in the financial industry, I think. We are joined by uh, David Enrich of the Wall Street Journal. He is the uh, author of the book, The Spider Network. Uh, we're talking about the LIBOR scandal. 844-WHARTON is the number if you'd like to join in with a comment. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you're more than welcome to send us a comment via Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show. You can use either the show Twitter account, at uh, bizradio111, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at Dan. Loaning 21. Uh, I, I want to ask you f for a minute about the governments uh, involved in this and the role that they have or didn't have and, and what they did or did not see that kind of allowed this to kind of play out uh, the way that it did. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, from the start, the, the government's role in this is really important because at a starting point, the the basis for this was that no one was paying any attention to these really important instruments. And that is a direct, an immediate result of the fact that governments in both the U.S. and elsewhere in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s really deliberately took a totally hands-off approach to the banking industry. And at the time, there was a race underway between different financial centers, especially between New York and London, to see which could kind of take the lightest touch to supervising the banks, and the reason for that is that they were all they were competing with each other to land jobs and investments and things like that, and and so there was a really aggressive back and forth between these cities trying to just deregulate as quickly as possible. Then, as as labor manipulation took hold, there were over and over again 
warnings given to central banks on both sides of the Atlantic saying, this is exactly what's happening. Please intervene. Please help. Please stop this from spreading. And those requests, which came from the banks themselves, fell on completely deaf ears. Which I guess, it, it, to a degree, is not a surprise. The way governments run, and, and I, I have jokingly said on a variety of different topics here, that governments, in many cases, are the last ones to know or care on various topics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's they knew. They just didn't care. Okay. They didn't really want to do anything about it because LIBOR is so deeply embedded in the financial system. And, you know, acknowledging a problem with it was potentially very destabilizing. In fairness to governments, there was a lot of other stuff going on at the time. So this was happening during the height of the financial crisis. Yep. The, the banking system seemed to be on the precipice of disaster. And it's so in that context is important, right? Because there's only a certain number of hours in every day and you have to kind of triage in situations like that. And LIBOR was not, or at least didn't seem like an existential issue. It seemed like something that was a bit, uh, something untoward was clearly going on, but is it a priority? Apparently not. But I mean, I think the bigger thing was that there generally is an attitude among regulators and prosecutors that to take the path of least resistance and do the yeah. thing that is most likely to quickly yield a positive result. And I guess that's human nature to an extent, but it all it means that it, it generates a very unambitious, very uncreative way of policing these very complicated sectors. And so with LIBOR, what you saw is that initially they just didn't want to deal with it at all. The CFTC in Washington, which is, uh, especially at the time, an obscure, very underfunded government agency, was the only institution in the world that expressed any interest in doing this. And they, for years, were on this lonely mission, uh, a lonely, very slow mission, trying to persuade banks to cooperate and, and, frankly, trying to persuade other government agencies elsewhere in the world to get out of their way and let them do their job. And it's, were it not for their kind of stubbornness on this, most, a lot of this stuff never would have come to light. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. We're joined by uh, David Enrich, who is the author of the book, The Spider Network, The Wild Story of a Math Genius, a Gang of Backstabbing Bankers, and one of the greatest scams in financial history, talking about the LIBOR scandal. Uh, You uh, kind of touched on it a little bit ago about the fact that after all of this has occurred, uh, there haven't been many people that ha- have been doing jail time because of this, yeah. which is it's it's a disturbing pattern on a lot of fronts because we see it obviously here in the U.S. happening with all of the financial crisis and and some of the other things that have occurred. You know what's interesting, I and mean, I've done. Uh as part of the publicity for this book since it was published a couple of weeks ago, I've done a tremendous amount of radio. And radio, as you know, is it can be very deeply polarized on the, both the right and the left in this country. Sure, and yeah. So just as preparation for a lot of these interviews, I'd kind of done quick research on, are the, is this a Trump radio station or a Clinton or Bernie Sanders radio station? And I kind of expecting different slanted questions. And you know what? Everyone's asked the exact same thing, which is, why do the financial elite keep getting away with murder? Yeah, and it yeah. seems to be this really unifying theme across the country right now. And it just makes people blood boil. You know, there's so much uh, public pressure on politicians and prosecutors after the crisis to find some individuals to hold to account for the massive harm that the banking industry ca- caused to the country and to the economy, really to the world. Yeah. And 
prosecutors, instead of going after people at the top of the food chain, the CEOs and business leaders who are responsible for setting a culture at their institution and responsible for, in many cases, the practices of their institutions, instead of going after those guys, they uniformly went after a small group of relatively low-level people who, don't get me wrong, I mean, they, Hayes in particular did things that were wrong, knew they were wrong, or at least should have known he was, they were wrong, and deserves to be punished. But what is crazy to me is that Tom Hayes is currently serving an 11-year prison sentence in a maximum security prison. And as far as I can tell, he is the only banker currently in jail for crimes committed during the financial crisis. It's it's a staggering thing. And, and I mean, just when you think about it, we went through the financial crisis and now even just in the last couple of months, we had Wells Fargo. And obviously it's a, it's a smaller uh, smaller event in comparison to what LIBOR was, but still the fact that, you know, 2 million accounts were affected by what, uh, you know, some of these bankers were doing and the fact that it probably did run up the food chain all the way up to the top, yep. you know, even though the CEO resigned, he still didn't go to jail. And and, they, and that fumes a lot of people these days. I, and I get it. I mean, the, the one of the things I found interesting researching this book is that there's a there are a lot of people out there, experts in in law enforcement and criminal justice, who really think that this is the situation we're now in is a direct result of just a lack of ambition and creativity and kind of guts by prosecutors in some of the biggest countries in the world, including the U.S. And yeah. the the thing is, prosecutors do not like to lose cases, and so they've taken in general a very conservative approach to what cases they're going to bring because they don't want to gamble and losing. And so they, they build up these very impressive win-loss records as prosecutors. Some of them are undefeated. And to yeah. me, they, and they boast about that. And to me, that's a really unhealthy sign because, you know, the thing that would scare some of these bank CEOs is it's not losing some money or losing their jobs. It's the prospect of being perp-walked in front of TV cameras in handcuffs or the prospect oh, sure, of yeah. possibly losing your liberty in front of a jury of your peers, which is a terrifying thing. And to me, the great missed opportunity, the financial crisis, was trying to do that. Not, they didn't, the prosecutors didn't do that a single t- time with a, the CEO or a top executive of any major financial institution. And, you know, th- th- they might have lost those cases, but at least it would have struck some heart, some fear in the hearts of people. And that that's just a tremendous missed opportunity, in my opinion. The, the other interesting thing that, that I wanted to touch on for a second is, is not only did you have the access to, to Tom Hayes getting in touch with you, but all kinds of other data that, that apparently you were able to uh, to look at and, and access in, in the course of, yeah. uh, of doing this book, which I find amazing. And I asked this question, going through all of that data, were there even times where even you were surprised at, at kind of the lengths and the abilities that these bankers were able to go to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the so I got access to basically an entire hard drive worth of evidence that prosecutors had collected, which is everything from emails and chat transcripts to recorded phone calls and personnel records for uh, dozens of traders and brokers who were involved in the scandal. And it allowed me to – and one of the things that was really fun about this book is that it, it, the goal was for it to read – almost like fiction or like a thriller and not yeah. like uh, certainly not like a banking or finance book. And it, so there's a ton of personal stuff in here about what's motivating these people on an individual basis. And to me, it was staggering seeing the just the kind of depths of depravity that some of these bankers and traders demonstrated. Some of the just completely amoral 
unethical things they were doing. But all at the same time, it was really interesting to see, you know, on the one hand, these guys would be having a, a phone conversation, bantering with their colleagues about, you know, the prostitutes they were out with the night before. <laughs> and the next moment, their phone rings at work, and it's their wife on the line who's complaining that <laughs> the guy screwed up the DVR, and so the law and order didn't record properly. And so it was this kind of combination of wild antics and then mundane, normal life that yeah. it's just a reminder that these are all human beings. And these aren't institutions committing crimes. These are individuals who commit crimes and cult- individuals who are affected by their institutions' cultures. And it, it, it was really interesting for me as a journalist just to kind of see this all connected to human faces. What has Tom Hayes said to you? And, and I, I guess I understand that you, you still stay in touch with his family. Yep. Uh, what have they said or Tom has said about the fact that, that he's the only guy in jail? I mean, he's furious. Furious doesn't even begin to describe it. He is... Uh, in a deep, dark, angry depression, um, just raging at the world. And uh, his wife, Sarah, who is also a lawyer by training and is a little uh, more emotionally balanced, I would say, than Tom, right. is also just, you know, it's, 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 in, it's enraging for them. And they've got a little, a little boy, a little son, who is growing up at home without their dad. Yeah. And it's enormously painful and enormously difficult for them. Again, I don't want to, I, and I have developed a lot of sympathy for them and their situation here. I do want to make clear that he is not an innocent victim. Here. Right. He is oh, someone yeah. who is participating yep. in, he, he was not acting properly. He was acting illegally and I think deserves to be punished. I, I just find it galling that he is alone and being punished. Uh, David Einrich is the author of the book, The Spider Network. Uh, takes a look at the LIBOR scandal uh, and a lot of the personalities uh, involved in this. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. Getting back to something we kind of touched on a second ago, uh, the interesting part uh, of seeing this story play out and, and what we've seen since is that there doesn't seem to be any concern by the banking industry uh, that there are potential situations where people could actually go to jail. I mean, obviously, Tom Hayes is, is the one in this case, but th- they don't feel like there's any fear uh, or, or concern at this point. Well, I think that, I'm not sure I agree with that, actually. Okay. I, mean, I think the culture of the industry has actually changed quite a bit in the past few years, partly as a result of how severe and stiff the penalties have been imp- that are imposed on the banks. And there's and the ultimate people that drive behavior at banks are actually the shareholders of the banks. And they, right now, shareholders of banks are very worried about banks getting slapped with multi-billion dollar fines. Okay. My concern is that as memories of these massive penalties fade and memories of the crisis fade, the pressure is going to return on banks to just to amp up their profits, make as much money as quickly as possible. And as, as that becomes the priority among shareholders, that's going to become the priority among senior executives. And at that point, the cultural stuff goes out the window. And the the number one priority, once again, becomes just making as much money as quickly as you can. And that's, we've seen how that movie ends. And that it ends with envelope pushing being the norm and being encouraged. And it leads to people breaking the rules. And it leads to normal people getting hurt. And it leads to big scandals and crises that engulf the industry. And that's not in anyone's interest. You talk uh, uh, as well about uh, the personalities involved in this and the fact that Tom Hayes, in terms of 
uh, of all the people that were involved in this process, he was about, a, a, I guess, as calm in, in you know in terms of the lifestyle uh, that he was leading during this case uh, as anyone. I mean, yeah. obviously, if if you've seen the Wolf of Wall Street, you you kind of got a little bit of a look at at what that uh, what that lifestyle can be. And a lot of those other bankers that were kind of in and around Tom Hayes were were kind of like that. Yeah, and this is part of the reason I love Hayes as a central character for this book, because he's not your cookie-cutter banker out of central casting. This is a guy who is much happier going home after a day of work and having a bucket of fried chicken and an orange juice and watching Seinfeld reruns than he is going out to Michelin-starred restaurants or swanky clubs. And to me, his just massive social awkwardness, the fact that you know he would go to a dinner party and sit next to a stranger and start talking to her very loudly about his dandruff problem. He, he had no idea how to behave in normal society. And, and that makes him, it makes him slightly endearing as a character, I think, but it also kind of helps explain how he stumbled into this huge mess. Because he was yeah. just completely unable to pick up on any subtle cues or kind of social boundaries that normally would help uh, moderate someone's behavior. And it, it makes him the perfect guy to emerge at the center of a scandal like this, because he just has no filter and yeah. no ability to distinguish shades of gray. David, great to have you on the show. It's a phenomenal book. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. You got it. David Enrich. The book is The Spider Network. It is available in bookstores and online now. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.